0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Can the addition of immunotherapy to multimodal management of stage 1 to 3 non-small cell lung cancer help break the stalled cycle of poor outcomes? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CRA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Spicer. It's my pleasure to be here with uh, Dr. Nasser Al-Torqui talking to you uh, about uh, whether the addition of immunotherapy to multimodal management of stage one to three non-small cell lung cancer can help break the stalled cycle of poor outcomes. Uh, So it really is a privilege today to to be in Dr. Al-Torqui's company from Bell Cornell uh, Medical College in New York. And I'm joining you here from uh, Montreal, Quebec. I think if um, If we've learned anything from the last 30 plus years of of, uh, care in this area is that the best outcomes are achieved uh, via multi-modality approach. Um, But what has been uh, striking is the rapid number of changes and new data emerging in the last five years. And uh, these have really been thanks to uh, novel therapeutics that have proven their value in the metastatic stage now being applied to resectable stages of disease. Um, and so, immunotherapy has been uh, is becoming a pillar of treatment in uh, in operable lung cancer, which is obviously very exciting, and we all have a tremendous amount of hope about how it could uh, positively impact our patients. So, uh, to structure the discussion today, I'll be focusing uh, on the role of new adjuvant immunotherapy, and Dr. Altorki will uh, discuss uh, the recent Empower 10 results. Uh, focusing on adjuvant uh, immunotherapy. We'll then go on to do uh, some case discussions to try and illustrate uh, what have emerged as many of the questions uh, people have uh, about how to manage these patients. So uh, starting with the new adjuvant immunotherapy, conceptually, uh, although it's not a commonly employed uh, approach either in North America or Europe or many places around the world, Um, There are some strategic advantages to neoadjuvant therapy, uh, knowing that most of our patients who do recur will recur with metastatic disease. The idea of addressing that metastatic disease with um, early application systemic therapy is attractive. Immunotherapy has um, the uh, benefit of inducing a T-cell response that is targeted against the antigens present in the tumor and with the tumor in situ during the application of immunotherapy, at least theoretically, there's a perhaps a greater opportunity to uh, generate these T-cell-specific responses. There is data, although it's not prospective or comparative, but there is data to indicate that new adjuvant therapy may be better tolerated than it is in the adjuvant setting. There are issues of attrition and stage appropriate patients not making it to adjuvant therapy even when indicated and we've we've all known this for a long time. Um, And then there's all of the translational and scientific benefits of a new adjuvant regimen uh, which are uh, unparalleled really in terms of accessing pre and post uh, um, treated tissues and trying to determine predictors of response. So for all those reasons I think there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, about this approach. Now, uh, that being said, there are certainly some concerns, and I think surgeons are amongst the most concerned because we truly um, look after the highest risk portion of the patient's trajectory um, with with uh, their uh, operative intervention. um, And we don't want to compromise that any further or increase risk uh, to our patients, when we also know that that's uh, what contributes the greatest uh, portion to the possibility of cure. So questions that come up are um, which patients do we include and do we really have to do this? Um, What is the optimal duration or what are the optimal uh, combinations of neoadjuvant therapy? Um, What kind of side effects can we expect uh, for for our patients or are the oncologists going to mess this up? And this is sort of nicely summarized in this great uh, expert opinion piece by uh, by your protege, uh, Dr. Brendan Stiles, or especially uh, Stephen Broderick and Matthew Bott. It's, it's a good read. Uh, we also need to figure out how to assess clinical response um, because it might in, uh, impact their surgical decision-making. Um, how do we approach these patients surgically, MIS or open? And, and will it increase uh, the complication rate? Is it going to affect our our uh, statistics, uh, which is obviously a concern. We all want good outcomes for our patients. So uh, this all really started with a small series of uh, 20 or so, 22 patients that were treated at uh, Hopkins and Sloan Kettering uh, with two doses of preoperative nivolumab. And uh, right away, uh, even if this was a small trial, I think everyone was struck by the very impressive pathological response. Uh, data that emerged from that trial and it really ushered in a whole host of uh, new trials and there's dozens more that are uh, going to be reporting in the coming years uh, investigating different regimens, different doses, different approaches Uh, and it's been hard to integrate all of that information uh, as it's been thrown at us very quickly. But one thing that's been consistent is that um, what we see on the scan does not always correspond to what we see uh, pathologically and can sometimes be hard to uh, appreciate how it might influence our surgery. So um, we had some great responses that still had in the tumor that still had residual nodal disease. Other patients where the tumor may have appeared to grow, but then uh, in fact had almost complete pathological response. Um, So how do we manage all that? It's a big question. But all that early data has led to a flurry of activity, and pretty much every company that has a a checkpoint inhibitor in their profile is uh, doing these either neoadjuvant or periadjuvant trials. And uh, it's almost unquestioned that this will become part of our day to day practice before long. So uh, I had some involvement in Checkmate 816, which is um, a trial that investigated the use of neoadjuvant uh, nivolumab plus platinum doublet versus uh, platinum doublet chemotherapy for stage 1B to 3A by the old HACC7 criteria. There was a NEVO-IPI arm, which is yet to fully report out, uh, but that was dropped uh, when the results of the Nadine trial started to come in, indicating that uh, NEVO chemo was uh, probably the most efficacious and well-tolerated regimen. The primary outcome measures for this trial were event-free survival and pathological complete response with some other exploratory and secondary outcome measures. Um, The baseline characteristics of the patients were fairly well balanced, exactly what you would expect from um, predominantly stage two, three um, patient population. Uh, Half the patients were recruited in Asia, um, and they were evenly split between squamous and non-squamous histologies. This is the flow diagram for uh, patients making their way through the uh, treatment trajectory in the trial. And as you can see, the vast majority of patients were able to at least start neoadjuvant chemo and most were able to complete. In fact, more seemed to be able to complete it in the uh, chemo and uh, volumab arm. Uh, there were some surgical cancellations which always uh, calls into some concerns. But in fact, um, the amount that were due to disease progression, it says, uh, 7% and 10% here, but radiological progression by Rhesus criteria was only 1% in each arm. Uh, one um, finding which I thought was compelling as a surgeon is the uh, duration of surgery. So we have almost a half hour difference um, in the time of surgery uh, between the two cohorts favoring the nevo chemo arm. And uh, this was uh, held up across stages. So even in the stage 1B and 2s, um, the surgical time was less um, the, the um, impressive uh, finding was the positivity of the uh, first uh, primary independent primary endpoint, which uh, was pathological complete response, and you see a delta of almost twenty two percent between chemo and nevo chemo or 14 fold difference, uh, which was no doubt dramatic. Um, This uh, was particularly interesting in that it was true across all um, predefined um, subgroups analyzed. There did not appear to be any um, or any really significant influence of the PDL1 level, which is also uh, consistent with what we've uh, seen in the metastatic stage, but uh, perhaps uh, even more so in these uh, earlier stage patients that may have a more intact immune system and better able to respond to checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, so the other uh, thing that I've noted, which I think will be important to uh, investigate further in the future, is that although a smaller proportion of patients were uh, exposed to carboplatin uh, containing regimens versus the standard, uh, which is cisplatin, the response rate seemed very, very good. And if there's one difference between Checkmate 816 and the results of the Nadim trial, uh, where we saw over 60% pathological complete response is that the uh, chemo regimens were quite different. Um, Cisplatin being the uh, favorite uh, doublet in uh, Checkmate U16, whereas carbotaxol was the uh, regimen used in Nadeem. Depth of pathological response was impressive uh, and dramatic as compared to chemo, and this was uh, true across um, stage groupings. Um, as you can see here. And uh, so really, regardless of stage, there is a, a extreme uh, biological activity of this combination as, as opposed to chemo alone. Um, when one looks at the adverse event summary uh, from the neoadjuvant portion of the trial, there were really uh, no signals to indicate that there was increased um, um, adverse events in the NEVO chemo group, which is unusual when you add a an extra anti-cancer agent, so that was very reassuring. <clears throat> um, there was a an exploratory analysis looking at ctDNA clearance, and this provides us with some hope that it could be a useful biomarker to uh, predict uh, the, the occurrence of pCR. But further studies will have to be done uh, to uh, to determine that more clearly. From a surgical standpoint, I think it was exciting to see that this you new know, regimen could. Uh, reduce the amount of uh, of um, thoracotomies required, particularly in the stage three A patients, where um, <clears throat> this is uh, you know more more surgeons may be approaching these open, especially in a multi trial that's con- that conducted over 150 sites. You have to remember that these surgeons were perhaps seeing this regimen for the first and only time in their career, if they only recruited one or two patients. So you can understand why a lot of them might have approached these uh, patients by an open uh, surgical uh, technique. Um, the conversion rate was almost reduced by half uh, by the application of Nevo Chemo, which I think is also quite telling. To me, this is, from a surgical standpoint, one of the most impressive and important findings. We have uh, 20% more patients in the stage 3A uh, cohort that are able to have their resection done via a lobectomy. Um, maybe 40% fewer patients require a pneumonectomy again in the stage 3a cohort, which is to me very uh, meaningful from a um, morbidity and uh, tolerability perspective on the surgical side. When we look at the outcomes, uh, the most striking one is less pain in the um, nevo chemo treated cohort, most likely due to the uh, reduced rate of thoracotomies. But there are other um, Adverse events like dyspnea or fistulas that seem to be less frequent in the nevo chemo arm. In CTCAE, which is the clinical trial adverse event guide, grade five surgery-related events have to happen within the first 24 hours of surgery. As we know, uh, surgeons, we considered 30, 90-day outcomes to be all potentially surgically related. There were two grade five events in the um, nevo chemo arm versus chemo alone arm. And uh, we hope to be able to report the 30- and 90-day uh, mortality rates uh, once the EFS is uh, published. Length of stay, I think, was uh, there was no difference when we looked at the whole cohort, but we know that uh, length of stay is quite different based on, um, on where you live uh, for a whole host of reasons. But uh, when divided up by geographic region, there did seem to be a consistent and sustained a reduction in the length of stay when patients got ne1 an chemo. And again, I think that's quite meaningful. So um, in summary, uh, we know that Checkmate E16 has now met both of its uh, co-primary endpoints with VFS and uh, pathological response. There were no real uh, specific subgroups that derived more benefit uh, than the other. And from a surgical standpoint, although we weren't allowed to test for it, statistically, it does seem that the uh, combination treatment is uh, favorable um, versus chemo alone. Um, This is not really news uh, to many oncologists. Uh, Neoadjuvant treatment in breast cancer melanoma has now become standard. And if you just look at the delta here between uh, um, placebo plus chemo versus Pembro plus chemo in the pathological complete response, metrics They're only about 13%, um, and that translated to a statistically significant event-free survival in a population that, you know, already has much better survival than our, our patients. Um, so, I definitely expect that the EFS will be clinically me- meaningful in terms of how positive it is, um, and uh, we have to remember that our oncologists are keen to, to uh, apply these uh, uh, types of treatments because they, they've seen the benefits in other disease sites in the past. So uh, again, summarizing, I think it's clear that surgical resection after neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy is safe uh, and can, and that MIS uh, techniques can be applied uh, with relatively low attrition. Um, that uh, when we operate within our usual intervals uh, after neoadjuvant chemo, meaning four to six weeks, chemoimmunotherapy leads. To good search outcomes aren't really significantly uh, different from what we might expect from chemo alone. And really, surgeons, I think, uh, can and should be willing partners to oncologists in terms of establishing the best possible care plans for their patients. So that's it for me. Uh, happy to turn over to you, Dr. Al-Torqui.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. That was uh, a great presentation, great trial, and I'm pretty sure it will Given the event-free survival rate, it will soon be approved as a new regimen uh, in patients with early-stage lung cancer. That's really good, good, good results. So I want to just talk a little bit about uh, adjuvant immunotherapy, which is the other uh, side of this coin. Uh, and as you all know, there is, uh, there is a recent publication of the Empower O10 of the adjuvant use of uh, tesolizumab. Uh, in patients with completely resected stage one B to three A uh, non-small cell lung cancer, uh, why? What is the rationale for adjuvant therapy? Well, it addresses an important concern that surgeons and patients and referring physicians have, which is uh, waiting. We don't want to wait. Patients don't want to wait, and the referring physicians certainly don't want to wait, lest the tumor progresses within. Uh, the usual nine to 12 weeks that are required to deliver neoadjuvant chemotherapy, for example. Uh, And then we also worry that uh, the adjuvant therapy may actually make the operation more technically complex, increase the morbidity, and uh, perhaps even reduce the chances of being able to do this operation minimally invasively. And the example that comes to mind here is the use of neoadjuvant chemoradiation, for example. And then, you know, there is good reason to, to suspect that if you're going to apply, well, first of all, we, ha- we have a track record of adjuvant therapy working for this disease. The adjuvant chemotherapy trials that have shown unequivocally that chemotherapy improves out survival in this cohort of patients, albeit not great, 5 to 8%. And then finally, of course, is that there's uh, the, the possibility that immunotherapy may be working better if you reduce the overall disease burden and the antigen load. So these are the real concerns with the first two being the most uh, important ones. So as the trials with early stage disease with advanced stage disease showed sequentially that these the the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors work in patients with stage 3 and stage 4 disease, the next logical step was that you know, there were many trials by, uh, led by industry uh, exploring their benefit in the adjuvant setting. There are four of these trials. The ANVIL trial, uh, which employs nivolumab, the Empower O10, which we'll talk about today, led by Genentech Roche, the uh, NCI uh, Canada BR31 trial of adjuvant dervalumab, and finally, the PEARLS or the Keynote 091 uh, which uh, employs adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab. Generally, all these trials are applied in the same uh, stages of disease, stage 1b to 3a, and uh, have roughly the same uh, primary endpoints. Two of these trials have already reported, and the others are expected to report with we'll readout in the next few months. So let's uh, shift out to F- Empower 010, which is the first trial to report uh, and it was reported by Dr. Wakeley, the results in ASCO of 2021 and uh, an encore presentation about the surgical aspect of it was reported at the ISLC. So this trial in, enrolled completely resected patients with stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancers based on uh, the, UA, the AGCC version seven uh, stage 1B tumors that were more than four centimeters. The patients were enrolled but not randomized until they received their adjuvant chemotherapy. So uh, 1,280 patients were enrolled. And then after chemotherapy, 1,005 patients were randomized one-to-one to to receive 16 cycles of atezolizumab uh, or best supportive care, which is basically observation. Patients were followed for survival. And the, 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 the statistical analysis employed a hierarchical testing plan, meaning patients where disease-free survival, which was the primary endpoint, was tested in the primary population of uh, PD-L1-positive stage 2 to 3A, and if it was positive, favoring a TISO, that is, in that cohort, then the DFS will then, was then assessed in all randomized stage 2 to 3A population. And if it was positive, then DFS was then tested in the overall population that included stage 1B as well. And then, uh, finally, overall survival. So, as I said, the primary endpoint was DFS in the PDL1 expressing stage 2 to 3a, and in all the randomized stage 2 to 3a, and in the ITT population, there were some uh, secondary key endpoints, notable among them DFS in, the, in, in tumors expressing PDL1 uh, in 50% or more of the tumor cells. So the results uh, uh, were read out in the first interim analysis, uh, and this just shows you the baseline characteristics which are essentially similar between the ATESO arm and the best supportive care arm. There was a slight preponderance of non-squamous histology, which was about a little over 60% in both arms of the trial. Uh, there was no difference in the uh, proportion of patients who were pdl one positive by the SP-263 being 57% in the atezo arm and 52% uh, in the best supportive care arm. This was predominantly a stage 2 to 3A trial with roughly 11 to 12% of the patients having stage 1b. The majority of the patients were received a mediastinal node dissection, uh, the rest having uh, n- their nodes sampled. Uh, again, the majority had positive nodal disease. Lobectomy was the most frequently opera- done operation, done in 77 and 78% of the patients. And pneumonectomy was performed in a proportion that is common in these global trials. And then, of course, we, we mentioned that patients received uh, up to four cycles of chemotherapy. The most common uh, combina- doublet was the cisplatinum vinorelbine, followed by the cisplatinum pemetraxate combination. The results, uh, the DFS results in the primary population of pdl one expressing stage 2 to 3A were presented by Dr. Wakeley, as I said, in, the, in ASCO 2021. And on the left side and the left uh, Kaplan-Meyer here, you see that the survival favored the atezo arm, uh, which was 60% in the atezo arm versus 48%. In the ATISO, in the best supportive care arm, the median disease-free survival was not reached after ATISO and was 35 months after best in the best supportive care arm. Was a hazard ratio of 0.66 and a p value of 0.004. When you looked at the uh, all randomized stage two to three a patients again, survival was DFS was significantly higher in the atezo arm. The median DFS was 42 months in the Atizo arm versus 35 months in the best supportive care arm. The the hazard ratio was 0.79 and the p-value was 0.02. In the overall population, which is the graph on the far right, uh, there was an indication that the Atizo arm fared better, although the statistical significance boundary was not crossed at the first interim analysis. So the the, uh, DFS in the ITT population continues to be followed until the final uh, DFS. This is a forest plot, which is an exploratory analysis that shows... The, uh, the DFS uh, in the population of patients with stage 2 to 3A that expressed PDL one And here, basically, the take-home message, this is an unplanned exploratory analysis, and the, the take-home message is that uh, in j- the left side of the line, uh, to the left of the line is favoring atezo. So uh, atezo was beneficial across all key demographic and clinical characteristics Uh it's important to note here that at the time that these adjuvant trials were set up, patients with EGFR mutations and ALK rearrangements were included. And even though it seems like uh, the hazard ratio here is to the left of the line in the EGFR uh, population specifically, the numbers are way too small. And generally speaking, these patients are no longer uh, treated by uh, immune checkpoint inhibition. This is another the, the same exploratory analysis, but now applied to all randomized patients with stage 2 to 3a. And again, it shows that the ATISO uh, improved DFS across all key demographic and clinical characteristics. Importantly, here within the, within the outline box, you can see that the benefit was restricted to patients who had the PDL-1 expressed in 50% or more, or any PDL-1 expression i will draw your attention that in the that the that the dfs in in patients with 50% or more expression of pdl1 that's a key secondary endpoint and if you look at this uh, hazard ratio it's 0.43 which equa- which equates to um, I suppose to be a 57% reduction in the hazard of, of death these are the data that i just showed you with regarding to pdl1 expression and dfs just shown graphically here in the top Three panels are the DFS in patients, including those that have EGFR uh, mutations and ALK rearrangements. And again, you can see that in each one of these arms, the uh, DFS was significantly higher, better than the best supportive care arm, certainly in the whole target population uh, of uh, uh, that expressed PD- any PDL1, and certainly in. The key secondary endpoint of PDL1 more than 50%. This, the PDL1 expression between 1% and 49% was not a pre specified endpoint. So it's sort of hard to uh, draw any meaningful conclusions, but you can see that the DFS was still better in those patients and was numerically higher when we excluded patients who had. Uh, uh, had EGFR mutations or ALK rearrangements. So, in general, uh, across all levels of PDL1 expression, there seems to be a beneficial effect across the board. Here, we then looked at, uh, and this is some of the data that was presented at the ISLC meeting, the impact of uh, prior therapy on on DFS in the target population expressing PDL1 in one percent or more, which is the stage two to three A patients, and. Uh, Again, I remind you that uh, to the left of the line favors atezo. So, in general, across all treatment types, all surgical treatments, all types of chemotherapy, there was generally favored uh, DFS was generally better after atezo. There was some discussion about whether or not patients with pneumonectomy should uh, benefited, or patients who received cisgem had a benefit or not. And I think it's important to keep in mind that these are. Uh, exploratory analyses not for which the trial was not really powered, and therefore uh, the hard conclusions cannot be drawn based on these small numbers. There was also an exploratory analysis looking at circulating t- tumor DNA positivity and how it uh, was cleared, and here uh, th- these graphs show that uh, uh, circulating tumor dna was an important prognostic sign both in the atizo arm and in the best supportive care arm so if you look here the two blue lines are the represent the atizo arm and here is survival with atizo in patients who cleared their circulating tumor dna versus those that did not and that was statistically significant in the best supportive care arm as you would expect patients who had residual uh, positive circulating tumor dna uh, did worse than those that uh, that were negative in a direct comparison, median disease-free survival was better uh, if, if, if the DNA was cleared, which is these two curves here. So if you cleared your circulating tumor DNA, you still did better with a TESO than without, and uh, you still did better with a TESO than without if you had residual circulating tumor DNA. And then the issue, of course, was what are the adverse events? Do we take patients who had just finished chemotherapy and then give them an additional uh, 16 cycles of immune checkpoints and what is the downside of that. And the grade three, four adverse events associated with Atizu was 21%. About half of those were considered to be treatment-related. There were eight deaths in the atizo arm. Four of them were considered treatment-related. One was from interstitial lung disease. One, I think, was from a, my- a cerebrovascular event. One from acute leukemia. And the other one, I think, was from a myocardial event. So among 495 patients, there were four deaths that were deemed to be related to that, to the treatment. What about the immune-related adverse events? Well, as you would expect in, an, uh, in, an active, in the active arm, There were a lot of immune-related adverse events uh, among the patients who received the atezo, which was 51% versus 9.5%. And these are immune-related events of of any grade. But what are the common ones? The common ones were rash, transaminitis, and hypothyroidism. As you can see, mostly grade 1 and 2, the grade 3 and 4 events were very infrequent and were in the low single digits. One thing that is of concern to us as surgeons is the uh, the proportion of patients who would develop immune-related pneumonitis with the therapy. And as you can see, pneumonitis of any grade occurred in 3.8 percent of the patients who received adjuvantizo, and in only four patients was it uh, a grade three and four events, and, uh, a grade three or four adverse event. And I think only one of these required uh, intervention. This is just looking at the overall survival, which, as I said, was not the, the statistical significant boundary was not crossed. And this is in overall survival in the stage two to three A uh, PDL1 expressing tumors or randomized two to three A and in the ITT population. Now, the trial continues until the final the, uh, interim analysis to report on uh, uh, overall survival and DFS in the ITT population. The trial led to an FDA approval of atezolizumab for adjuvant treatment following resection and platinum based chemotherapy in stage 2 to 3a, who, whose tumors have PDL1 expression on 1% or more of the tumor cells by the FDA. Uh, and uh, it, uh, that has to be shown using the Ventana PDL1 for S, or the SP263 assay to show positivity for PDL1 and recently of course there was a press release from the pearl trial showing that uh, adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab met its uh, met its primary endpoint of improvement in dfs uh, in patients with stage 1b to 3a following surgical resection regardless of pdl1 expression uh, but in uh, in the in, in in the co-primary endpoint of uh PDL1 in uh, tumor portion with tumor proportion score more than fifty percent or more, although there was an improvement in DFS, uh, the 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 difference was not statistically significant. So the trial continues to to be the patients continue to be followed for that uh, co-primary endpoint, and I think that's all I have.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Altorki. That uh, brilliant uh, study and. What an achievement to, to bring um, this new treatment to so many patients. Um, it, it's uh, transformative and a long time coming. Um, so we've reserved the last uh, 20 minutes or so of this um, of this presentation uh, to go through some cases in uh, hopes that we could address some of the questions that have come through um, from uh, different, different registrants and uh, folks we speak to on a regular basis about uh, about Managing immunotherapy in the perioperative uh, setting. So, um, Dr. Altorki, I'll, I'll present. This is a case I've yet to operate, um, and I'm curious to, to have your, your insights. He's a 71 year old patient who um, is an ex smoker with 50 pack year history of smoking. He presented at the time with ECOG 0. He had ended a bronchial biopsy showing a uh, squamous cell carcinoma that was uh, PDL 1 90% clinically staged him as a T3N0. He had good lung function. Quantitative BQ showed that uh, his left lung was contributing uh, 35% function. So my questions to you would be, how would you manage this patient in, in your practice? We can see that it's a very pet avid lesion here in the hilum with the encroachment of the proximal uh, left main PA. Would you favor a neoadjuvant approach, surgery first, would you need more information how, how would you uh,
2: approach the situation yeah so I, so I, I think this is a case in you know in which the given the proximity and the abutment of the tumor on the on the on the pa uh, so proximally is uh, the patient would be a you know likely to be uh, to have a pneumonectomy in order to get it out if I would do surgery first. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be able to do something fancy like an PA angioplasty or a sleeve, uh, but still, I mean, there will be a chance of a pneumonectomy going in. This is a, a 71-year-old uh, man, and therefore, you know, pneumonectomy is not without any morbidity. So my my personal approach to this Would be to give these patients new adjuvant therapy and reassess them after a short course of treatment. I would not go all the way to four cycles of chemotherapy, for example, Mm -hmm. cycles of chemo IO, but uh, have a short term, like say, by the uh, after the second cycle, reassessment of these lesions.
1: Great. Well, that's very insightful, and uh, certainly when uh, I was a resident, I had the fortune of training with uh, Dr. Mulder, and uh, you know this would have been. uh, 58-minute left pneumonectomy and <laughs> somehow the patient would have done great. Uh, and I'm sure that would be true in your hands as well. But, uh, you know, after tumor board discussion, we, we uh, offered this patient uh, chemo IO on trial. And this was a um, so post-treatment scan. We did exactly as you uh, suggested and got a scan after cycle two. Um, and you can see that the tumor tumors still abutting the, the main PA, uh, but it seems to be a little, a little encroaching a little less. It's not by by no means a complete radiographic response. Um, I guess now the question is, uh, what what would you be thinking? Uh, would you want to continue treatment, or is have we achieved what we wanted and go straight to surgery with maybe a plan for adjuvant? Or would you still maybe even consider non-surgical therapy a patient's doing well? Um, What do you think?
2: Well, uh, I think the plan was to give him four cycles of chemo. uh, Was it chemo or chemo IO? Oh, you gave him chemo IO. Yes. Yeah. So so the plan was four cycles and uh, I think it's working. So I'd stick with the plan. (laughs)
1: Well, yeah, I agree. And, and that, you know, I think one of the things that comes out from any of the trial data in the chemo IO space is that you don't really know what this is, right? This could yeah. just be fibrosis. And, and it's, it's so it makes, we're, we're in such a tough position now as to how to make intraoperative judgments about this. Um, Well, so that's what I did. I said, let's continue. And I like to see them uh, either after their second or third cycle. So I can chat a bit about how they're progressing or hopefully responding um, and discuss the surgical plan in more detail. Um, And so I I booked this patient for surgery. And then um, I think a week later or a little less, I got a call from the oncologist saying, uh, slow down, cowboy. I don't think you saw the whole scan. And indeed, I hadn't. And i this was an error on my part i missed uh this lesion down here and there's another one sort of next to it um so what what, what do you think about this uh dr torqui uh well, how would you reevaluate well, in light of
2: this you know i it, it, was this bed active
1: well we didn't this was the post cycle two cp it wasn't a yeah so we don't we didn't have that information at the time well
2: you know it, it, I don't know. It would seem sort of odd to have for him to have just a solitary lesion in the right lower lobe like that, or maybe one next to the other like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my experience is that with IO, sometimes you get granulomatous responses within uh, other areas of the lung. So, if I was not going to operate on this guy because of this, I would certainly try make an attempt to have a needle biopsy or some documentation of metastatic disease. Yeah. Sure.
1: Fair enough. Um, I mean, we talked about it, uh, kind of shared your your thinking that it's a bit of a weird pattern of pro- progression, even though it's not impossible. Um, and so we decided just to continue treatment for to, to complete the full course of chemo IO, because that would be what you'd sort of do in a metastatic setting. Um, and although we don't routinely get pets, this was um, off protocol, we we decided to get a pet post um, post-cycle four. And uh, this is what it looked like. You can see that the lesion itself is still uh, very avid, but that area completely resolved with uh, no, no lesion to be seen on CT. So evidently something inflammatory. So I think the collaboration between the two uh, teams was really essential. Um, I'm curious to know about what your uh, restaging policies, I, I get a lot of questions about, you know, is imaging sufficient, or should we be doing invasive mediastinal staging after induction treatment? Um, what, what What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it, I think in a in in somebody like this who in seventy one or seventy two years old with a reasonable probability of having a pneumonectomy. I would probably uh, uh, have mediastinal staging done at the time of the planned operation. My suspicion though, that in the absence of pet activity within the mediastinum, that he will have no evidence of mediastinal nodal spread.
0: Yeah. Fair enough.
2: Yeah. The other thing, you know, and I think there is something that of a controversial position, which is, uh, you know, what happens if you have residual N2 disease? Well, if, to, my, to my mind, if you have residual N2 disease and you have a lobectomy done and an R0 resection done, that's all well and good. I mean, you know, uh, it becomes problematic if you have residual N2 disease and a pneumonectomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's another discussion.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And uh, that's my attitude is why well. I, I, I don't personally get uh, invasive media style staging after uh, induction if the initial one was was uh, negative or the imaging continues to look like resectable disease, especially as you say, especially if it's only going to be a lobectomy, but it is a continued matter of debate. Um, so uh, on to the next case, this is a. Uh, Another patient, a 69-year-old woman, 30 pack year, ECOG zero, very fit, no comorbidities. Uh, she presented, uh, however, with an advanced lesion. It was clinical T4N2, single station in the four-hour position. Um, it was squamous cell carcinoma as well. PDL1 was 90%. We had a chemo-Io trial for her, but she uh, declined it because uh, it was far from the hospital, uh, and she didn't want to do the, the back and forth. Um, you can see that this uh, lesion is sizable; it's uh, extending close to the hilum, um, and uh, and so uh, she uh, elected to. She was offered uh, chemo radiation as an alternative, but she really wanted a surgical option, and so she went on to um, uh, have uh, conventional chemotherapy. After her her first cycle of treatment, unfortunately, though, she she presented the hospital with febrile neutropenia, she was pancytopenic, uh, and she needed a one-week admission to the hospital. Um, So uh, what would you do in this scenario, uh, Dr. Antwerpi?
2: You know, I think that uh, one is now, I don't want to say committed, but, you know, she's, she's failed. She's gotten the first cycle, and she obviously didn't do well with it and your options are local therapy here. Mm-hmm. So I am, uh, if, if she was, uh, how old was she? I, she is 69. Yeah. So I'd say she's a young uh, 69 year old. I would probably operate on her and, 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 and take this out and, and hope that I can give her adjuvant therapy, uh, adjuvant IO at least. Right. Yeah. So
1: again, that's what we did. Um, we did get a, a restaging CT just to make sure she hadn't uh, progressed uh, after that one cycle of chemo. If anything, it looked like the tumor had had a partial response. Um, and uh, and we went on to, to surgery. We, she had fortunately enlisted in our prehabilitation program from the initial visit, and so she continued on that for about three weeks after her discharge from the admission for febrile neutropenia. And I think it helped her get back uh, to as close to her baseline as possible, though she was a bit beat up by the whole experience. Um, we were able to do this by VATS lobectomy. Uh, it was her bilobectomy, rather. Um, the uh, tumor was invading along the superior pulmonary vein and pericardium. We had to do an intrapericardial revision of the vein. Um, but she, the surgery was done by VATS, and she was discharged on post-op day 2 uh, You know, it's embarrassing for me to to show this stuff, but anyways, it's, it's reality. Uh, her, um, her post-op path was YPT4N2, and unfortunately she had an R1 resection. I was surprised uh, but it, because the bronchus seemed clean, but there was extensive LVI, and so the bronchial margin was uh, microscopically positive, and we had a close margin on the pericardium. She goes well after surgery, so now we get into this discussion. Patient has sort of failed chemo, had a near-death experience with it in the pre-op setting. Um, what do we do with her now, uh, that she's back at baseline in terms of managing her adjuvant care?
2: Yeah. So, you know, number one, you know, I, I would not have expected her to have a positive bronchial margin based on the imaging that you just showed, but I guess it's possible that everything is possible. I think, you know, it's, it's a very unfortunate case because she is now outside of the evidence-based, uh, data that we have. It's important to know that uh, the adjuvant IO is uh, from Empower 10 is in patients who are completely resected. So by definition, had R0 resection, uh, which she does not. She does not meet that, and then had up to four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy. She does not meet that, and then they can get adjuvant atezo. Mm-hmm. So, it if it, you know based on on the data. She would not be a candidate for adjuvant IO, but she's obviously has, on the other hand, no other options. Uh, as you know, the lung art study showed that there was, you know, well, the lung art was actually in, in, in completely resected patients as well. So she does have a positive margin. I don't know. She has PD, that tumor expressed PDL1 in 90% of its tumor cells.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that, I mean, it'd have to be a discussion with the patient about whether or not she'd be willing to get the uh, treatment outside of a clinical trial. Yeah. I don't know of a clinical trial that addresses this specific situation.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's one of the reasons why I wanted to present it because it was it's um, a difficult scenario, right? You kind of want her to get IO. You have every reason to believe that she would benefit from it. Um I think R one on a bronchial margin is probably one of the last uh, indications for uh, adjuvant uh, radiation or you know any microscopically positive margin. So that's what we recommended to her. And um, at, in Canada, anyways, we don't have access to adjuvant IO. We have, but uh, I would hope that, that well, some trial has, will offer she, this.
2: She has, so, so would she be a candidate for adjuvant DERVA after that in Canada?
1: Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, we didn't explore that, but she'd be yeah. just, yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, okay, and now uh, here's one of your cases, uh, Dr. Al-Tarki.
2: Yeah, so so this is, uh, you know, I, we, I present this case for to, to make two points. So, so this is uh, a fellow that presented with a pretty large, I think it was almost like a 10 or 11 centimeter tumor in the lower lobe. Uh, and clearly uh, heading towards a pneumonectomy uh, based on the extent of his local disease. The biopsy was positive for adenocarcinoma. He was a former smoker. We had, uh, at the time, our uh, neoadjuvant, uh, Dervalumab plus low-dose SBRT uh, of 8 gray times 3. And, you know, we we gave him the first cycle of treatment. So he gets 8 gray times 3 in three consecutive days, plus one dose of dervalumab. And then he came back for his second cycle of treatment and he had grade three transaminitis. His AST and ALT were really uh, elevated. And, uh, you know, we were stuck, we imaged him uh, and the the image is what you see in the middle there. So he had a significant uh, partial response after one cycle of that treatment. Mm -hmm. but we were unable to operate on him right away or we decided not to operate on him right away until his transaminitis resolved. There was no treatment given and we waited about uh, four uh, weeks afterwards, I think week 11 or so that we operated on him and he had a, a lobectomy if you can believe it and had major pathological response with less than uh, 10% uh, viable tumor cells in the resected uh, uh, specimen, and his nodes were negative. So to me, that's, uh, you know, it was a spectacular case from my point of view in the sense that I would not have expected that we we would be able to avoid a pneumonectomy in this person. And then the issue of transaminitis, which as I, uh, you know, showed earlier, is pretty common, and it's often uh, transaminitis and not hepatitis, meaning they're not he wasn't clinically sick. So mm-hmm. these are the, 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 the two issues, and I don't know. I mean, I I, I suspect if he if you were have we would have seen him, you would have given him neoadjuvant therapy rather than operate on him right away.
1: Yeah, for sure. In our practice, that that's what we would have advocated. That I, I like the idea of. Uh, a chemo sparing regimen like this um, that, that you, you've published in your trial. Have you noticed any issues around bronchial stump uh, healing? You know there is some data around the use of preoperative radiation, especially for um, higher uh, lesions. Is, is this something you've, you've encountered?
2: Not really, Jonathan. You know this is uh, uh, you know this is really low dose. It's eight Gray. I mean. Which is equivalent to about 24 biologically effective doses. So much less, the, it wouldn't even. It would not ablate the tumor, let alone cause any uh, problems with healing.
1: Yeah, so it's really uh, inducing, sort of assisting the uh, the uh, immune response. Really. Yeah.
2: Immune let me let me ask you in in the chemo IO setting, when if you guys have like things like transaminitis or any other immune related adverse events, who manages that? Do you manage that? Does the oncologist manage that? Whether it's pre or post in the adjuvant set, in the postoperative setting?
1: So, um, you know, I, in the preoperative setting, it's obviously the oncologists, and we have a sort of immune-related adverse event team uh, of rheumatologists and immunologists for complicated cases that our oncologists can't manage. I think in the peri- post and post-operative and surveillance portion of the treatment, I think for the surgeons, it's more a matter of awareness and detecting things that might be subclinical. I had one patient who got ipinevo, had a path complete response and I saw him 3 months after surgery and and you know I was hoping that he'd be excited <laughs> about about the great outcome he was having. He was so depressed and uh it, you know it, it it was only after a bit of digging and 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 we f- figured out that he was profoundly hypothyroid and and that that happened just after I think one or two doses of vipinivo. So uh, I think it's an awareness of those things that we need to um, have so that we can help uh, identify issues as they emerge on the course of the patient.
0: Uh, you
2: you're absolutely right. The other thing that we need to be aware of is the chances of uh, immune-related adrenal insufficiency in the immediate post-operative people because a period. As you know, this can be sort of like uh, not exactly something that comes to mind right away. And, and may, you may run into issues of hypotension and the like
1: Well, it's very uh, fortuitous of you to mention that because uh, we have a case about a very (laughs) such scenario. Um, So if you don't mind, we'll go on to the the last case. Sure. Uh, So this is a 40-year-old gentleman um, who presented with ECOG-1. He was a heavy smoker. Um, As you can see, this is a, a very large tumor um, we staged it as a T4N0 after CT, PET, and EBUS. So it was a non-small cell lung cancer, not otherwise specified. There was uh, no mutations on a 52 gene panel, also had a high pdl one um, and uh, there was almost complete occlusion of the SVC. Uh, the tumor was uh, abutting the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th ribs, um, extending to the innominate vein and innominate an artery or at least abutting it. Uh, His FEV1 was 57%, the LCO was 54%, so a little bit borderline. Um, He had some facial swelling and right shoulder pain. So, you know, very locally advanced disease. You can see that the tumor is uh, almost uh, closing in on that bronchus and and the first branches of the pulmonary artery. Um, We discussed him at our tumor board and felt that his... um, his uh, radiation fields would have been very extensive uh, for a curative chemo RADS plan, um, and in order to get access to chemo I.O., we deemed him unresectable and sort of uh, treated him as metastatic, um, and we were able to get access to chemo I.O., for which he uh, we had a plan to give four cycles. We restaged him after two cycles, and this is the tumour. Uh, where you can see some necrotic areas emerging. You can see the uh, bronchus sort of opening up a little bit. There's the first branch of the PA there that is, um, is, looks clear. Uh, his facial swelling resolved, and you also see massive collaterals all along the side of the chest and along the diaphragm, uh, indicating that his SVC closed off and that he collateralized during this new management period. Uh, These are the uh, images uh, along the innominate artery and uh, chest wall. So, um, we continued on uh, with uh, four cycles of uh, chemo IO and there was an issue with surgical timing. The patient lived quite far from our treatment center. Um, And just for convenience, we gave one more cycle of IO monotherapy to get the right uh, plan. Uh, we uh, approached him with a right sternotomy. It was an extremely bloody uh, opening um, due to the SVC syndrome, but we were able able to get control ultimately. And uh, as we were dissecting, we were surprised that the parietal pleura was sort of clearing. I thought there'd be uh, rib involvement. Sent some frozen sections from that, and all was coming back negative. Um, I was expecting to have to do a bronchial sleeve, uh, but it was. We were able to dissect right onto the upper lobe takeoff and cut it flush with a, a knife and sent the whole specimen off for, um, uh, for frozen section. Surprisingly, the pathologist, I was shocked, the pathologist told us that the bronchium margin was negative. Um, our PA dissection was actually quite easy approaching it from uh, intrapericardial. Um, at the end of all of this, it was a YPT0, N0, and an eight centimeter uh, necrotic tumor bed. Um, so, Dr. Altorki, what, what do you think about this? Uh, um, how, how do you approach patients post-chemo IO uh, with the idea of the operation you offer them? Are you, are you thinking you're basing it on the original scan? Will you tailor based on what you find intraoperative? I think one of the issues we're going to face moving forward is how do we tailor our surgery to, to the unknown uh, response that might be happening pathologically?
2: Yeah, so well, number one, this is just a totally spectacular case. Uh, congratulations on getting it done. It's really a tough case. And, and you know, the fact that he had a complete path response is is, is fantastic. Um, and I think in the end, you know, obviously, he's better off with that thing out <laughs> than, than in. Um, I've always Based the operation on the original uh, image, mm-hmm. although I think that that pertains mainly to the era of new adjuvant chemotherapy or new adjuvant chemoradiation. Uh, in, in in this new phase, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think we're all learning here and. Uh, uh, the part of the problem is sometimes the response to chemo IO is, is dense fibrotic response. Mm-hmm. And it is very hard intraoperatively to make a decision about whether or not you're dealing with tumor yeah. uh, or, or not. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes that leads you to do more rather than less, but obviously sure. from, from your trial results, uh, you know, it seems like, um, uh, less pneumonectomies were done in stage three A. So that's not really a, ro- a robust finding, but it's something to think about.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the other thing is that this patient's post-operative course was not uh, smooth, you know, a- a- and you raised the issue of adrenal insufficiency. This guy developed a pneumonia, rest failure. He was hypotensive and although his sepsis improved, uh, his hypotension only resolved after we uh, gave him some steroids, uh, which is sort of compelling for adrenal insufficiency. And yeah. you wonder if the pre-op IO could have triggered that. Yeah. Um, and so he had a tough course. He eventually made it home and was relieved. But uh, do you think that if we were able to predict the the event of path CR, that um, it would be better to avoid surgery and consolidate with radiation. I'm sure we're gonna be pressed for that question in the near future as well.
2: Yeah, I I, I don't know that you can predict it. I mean, you know, I think that most of the time there is more metabolic activity on PET or at least residual metabolic activity on PET from the infiltration of the tumor mass by all these active immune cells, in, in, in this instance, I'm not quite sure how you would have avoided that. But, yeah. You know, it's certainly a, certainly an operation that you did there, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I
1: think it, it, one of the fun things about this is that uh, it does create a lot of opportunities for us as surgeons, yeah. maybe opening the possibility of offering good things for our patients, which might not have been that yeah. in the past. So one more uh, case here discussing um, uh, periadjuvant therapy. We have a 55-year-old Asian-American gentleman with uh, an extensive smoking history. Uh, this patient presented with hemoptysis. His chest x-ray showed a right upper lobe mass uh, Confirmed uh, was then confirmed by CT to be 4.9 by 4.1 by 2.7 centimeters in the right upper lobe with a solitary uh, size uh, significant lymph node in the right hilum brain uh, mr was negative that was otherwise unremarkable uh, patient was taken to surgery for right upper lobectomy um, path showed an r0 resection with uh, lung adenoparcinoma that it was pdl1 70% egfr ALK and ROS were negative kras g12a was uh, mutation was identified uh, and as i said only one positive lymph node so really a to uh b and one uh patient went on to get four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin pemetrexia which he tolerated very well except for some mild neuropathy so what are your thoughts uh, i think key features here are the hemoptysis the pdl1 how, how would you recommend uh, this patient get treated
2: well i mean i think uh Prior to empower O1O, this patient would have probably been treated by surgical resection followed by adjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah, and uh, I think now the data are compelling. I think for uh, what did you say his PDL1 was?
1: Seventy percent.
2: Yeah, I think the data now are compelling that this patient uh, should get adju- adjuvant atezo after he finishes his adjuvant therapy. This is exactly what uh, Empower 010 is about here. He, yeah. he, he fits the bill completely.
1: It's a slam dunk and it's a testament to the importance of the biomarker testing. And the um, some of the questions that come up as we close here uh, fr- from uh, folks in the audience who are listening are around the endpoints, you know, EFS, uh, DFS, some have concerns that, you know, we're in the curative setting that we really should be um, benchmarking to OS benefit. Do you have, do you have thoughts about, about that and, and how to interpret some of these early trial results?
2: Well, yeah, you know, I think that uh, I'm an advocate for DFS. I mean, you know, there's so many alternate therapeutics now for patients with lung cancer that if you really want to yeah. Address the efficacy of a therapy that you're delivering. I think DFS is an important endpoint. I think it's an important endpoint for the patient uh, as well. And uh, and I think the FDA is uh, is approving agents based on DFS more and more. So uh, not to diminish the value of overall survival, but I think you know we've for a long, long time we've sort of diminished the value of DFS. And I think it's something that we should keep in the front of mind here.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um the last question is this uh concept of team building and, and being able to work with a community of experts. Um do you have any advice for uh practicing surgeons out there who, who may not have employed these kinds of perioperative treatments as much as, as they may in the future in terms of operationalizing collaborations between uh, specialties between sites because we're often working across hospitals?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I I think we've already shown that um, in a multidisciplinary setting, patients do better regardless of what the therapy is, whether it's chemo IO or or chemo radiation or chemotherapy or just surgery. Uh, I think there is, if there was ever a reason To continue sticking to the concept of multidisciplinary tumor boards and multidisciplinary engagement, I think uh, it's it's, it's really important. And the other thing that I I would say also here is that the issue of molecular testing of of tumors in early stage disease, this is now front and center with the results of this trial uh, uh, that you had and uh, and Empower-010 and the ADORA trial, Uh, these uh, things have to be done up front and have to be discussed in tumor boards and and decisions have to be made because they're proving to be important for outcomes.
1: I couldn't agree more. And this is, I think, uh, couldn't be a better way to close this session. Um, Dr. Atorki. thank you very much for the opportunity to do this with you. Uh, As you know, I I hold you in great admiration and um, it it, it was fun. So
2: thank you very much. Great, great, great session. Thank you. Take care. Bye, everyone.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CRA860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol Myers Squibb. Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merck & Company Incorporated